morning, Sanctus Church. We're so glad that you're joining us here today. It was a few weeks ago, I was sitting in my front room, in the living room with my wife, and we had some friends visiting. It was great to finally do that for the first time, and all our kids were playing. My son, nine years old now, walks in, and he interrupts the conversation, not rudely. He says, excuse me, and I said, no, how can I help you? And he says, I've got a problem. I said, well, what's your problem? He says, I have sisters. I said, well, that's going to last for a a long time, basically till you're dead. And that problem is not going away. He said, yeah, but they're making fun of me. And, and I am actually sort of upset about it. And, and it's just got to stop. Now I know sometimes he lies to attack his sisters. So I wasn't really sure. He's like, no, no, for real, dad, this is real. This is serious. So I said, okay, well, we'll deal with it in a bit. And he stopped. He looked at me and he said, no, dad, this is above what I can deal with. I need you to come and deal with them right now on the trampoline. So I went and did it, and in that case, he wasn't lying. And my friend who was sitting with me said, what an unbelievable image of prayer. We, little kids, walk into the throne room of God, the one who is uncreated, the one who's responsible for, you know, all of reality, and we go, hey, Dad, sorry to interrupt Gabriel and Michael and all the saints and the angels and the elders, but I got a problem, and it's above my pay grade, and I need you to deal with it. And I need you to deal with it now because I, I can't, I can't do it. It's amazing that every single Christian on earth, no matter education level, gender, ethnic background, we all have that same profound access. Now, I want you to keep that image in your mind today because it's going to matter not only for you personally, but for us as a church in this season. So welcome to week two in this unusual vision series that we're walking through the early part of Exodus, dealing with impossible situations that God cuts through. Last week, and by the way, I need to stop. If you did not listen to last week's message and you belong, are connected to our Love Sanctus Church, I'm begging you, you must go back and listen to it, please. It's so important that you hear last week's message to connect to this one, but also to understand the, the tone and the tenure of this year. Last week, we focused on Moses' call, his five excuses, his obsession with personal inability, the terrible, unwinnable situation he was in, and his ethnic community who, who was in slavery in Egypt. There was no way out. And God responded not just with presence, but also with his promises. And then I shared how that has a direct connection to us as a church in this time. Let me do this again. Let me remind all of us hearing this message in this season, in this now. COVID-19, not going away yet. Global financial uncertainty, not sure what the church will look like or feel like and how we'll fully open. Ongoing racial tension, political fraying in a way that we probably haven't seen in at least 50 to 70 years. And, and then there is unprecedented access to conspiracy theories online that is seducing millions of people and elections that have huge implications all over the world. And here's something even more. Since last week's sermon, Things got worse, not better. You're like, oh, not more bad news. Yes. Last week I shared that there had been huge surveys done and 10 to 13% of churches in North America because of COVID would be gone. One out of 10 are going to disappear. And so that's going to rise post-Christianity and secularism. Well, since I preached last week, the Barna Group came out with a major study they just finished and actually said it's way worse than we thought. It's not one out of 10, it's one out of five. 20% of churches from every denomination and every background, evangelical and mainline and Catholic and Orthodox, one out of, ready? Catch this. 20% of churches are going to disappear and close their doors forever. 
Oh, and as we outlined all the chaos last week and some of it this week, there is another major barrier that actually is a huge barrier to freedom and it's a barrier to our freedom. And it was a barrier actually to Jewish freedom thousands of years ago that we have not even addressed yet that is at work in this moment and was at work in that moment. It's the kingdom of darkness. Always behind what is seen is the unseen, the great ongoing war from Eden forward. So let us hear God's word again today and be formed by it. We enter the story where Moses finally obeys God. Him and Aaron go back home. Moses confronts his adoptive grandfather, Pharaoh, and not only confronts what he represents or what he's doing, actually confronts the power behind him. Exodus 5.1. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, Pharaoh. Let my people go, so they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness, in the desert. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? Who is your God? that I should obey him and let the Hebrews go. I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Now, Pharaoh's question, who is the Lord, is answered 11 times by word and deed. See, God's goal here is not just to set his people free. His greater goal is that he would be glorified, and his greater goal is that the world would know who he really is, and Egypt and the Egyptians would know, not just the Jews. So this sets the stage for a real conflict, a real place of impossibility, the battle between the God of the Jews and the God of the Egyptians. It's near the end of this part of the story where we get heaven's view, where it reads in Exodus 12, 12, where God says, I, God, will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. See, he answers the question. Now, as we will see, Moses and Aaron are sent by God to confront Pharaoh in not one, not two, but three locations. They confront him outside, bathing in luxury in the morning. They confront him in the royal court, the place of literal religious and political and military power, and also confront him just walking outside in his kingdom. Any place where Pharaoh leads from or lives, God confronts him. Then comes the 10 plagues. Actually, there's 11 miraculous acts that point to one thing. God is sovereign. God is king. He he is greater than the greatest leader of that time. He is greater than the greater greatest superpower of that time, Egypt. Exodus 7.10. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw down his staff in front of Pharaoh and his officials. It became a snake. Pretty impressive. Pharaoh then summoned his wise men and his sorcerers and the Egyptian magicians also did the same thing by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff. It became a snake. By the way, this is not fable. This happened. This is a historical moment. Both of these groups are empowered by supernatural other forces. The question is who is stronger? See, Pharaoh's not impressed. He's seen this a thousand times over. He challenges Moses' authority and the identity of the God that Moses and Aaron are representing. Mocking the demonstration of power, Pharaoh goes, hey, boys, come over here. Do the same thing. And they do. See, here's the point. The demonic are real. And they have real power. But here's the difference. They don't have eternal power. It's not from the hand of the king of kings. It's not from the Lord of lords. It's not from the almighty God. That's why what happens next happens next. But Aaron's staff ate, killed, swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. It appears that Moses and Aaron's sign has been outdone until Moses and Aaron's staff kill and eat the staff of the Egyptians. 
This is a physical outline of a spiritual conflict happening between the gods of the nations and God who has chosen this insignificant group of Hebrew people as his only son. Pharaoh will not obey. Pharaoh will not give in. Pharaoh will not relent. So now comes the famous 10 plagues. But more, this whole account is to show who is the true living God, who is not just God, but the almighty God. This is God's judgment. This is actually God's humiliation on the Egyptians of that day. The first plague begins like this in Exodus 7, 17. This is what the Lord says, by this you will know I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the Nile, uh, the water of the Nile. It will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die. The rivers will stink. And the river will stink and the Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. Moving from the courtroom in the first encounter, now it's not just Pharaoh who's going to be encountered. Actually, all the people will feel the effects of God's coming wrath. One of the most basic needs of human life is what? Water. And now the basic need of life is about to be contaminated. Now, why does God start with the Nile? Because the Egyptians thought that the Nile was a god itself, the source of life, and it's now going to become the greatest source of death. The first plague was directed at Apis, the god of the Nile, and Isis, the goddess of the Nile, and there's even another god who's the guardian of the Nile, and the Egyptians even believed that the Nile was the bloodstream of Osiris, who was reborn each year when the river flooded. All of Egypt was fully dependent on the Nile for life, for economics, for religion, and civilization. God strikes the heart of security, prosperity, and religion, and also is reminding them, have you thought of this? That this is the very river that Pharaoh committed that horrific act where he made the Jews kill all their firstborn sons. Now we begin to see God's dangerous remembrance. Ah, but, verse 22, the Egyptian magicians did the same thing by their secret arts. Oh, and Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses or Aaron just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace. He didn't even take it to heart. Please move on. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water. So the ongoing power struggle between Pharaoh and Moses, between God and the gods of Egypt, continues. It seems like it is an equal match. Oh, but there's always a wrestle before the victory. That's why years later, I mean, generations later, Paul would write in Ephesians 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. But what we forget when we read that is the wrestling is real. You don't just say in Jesus' name and it's done. No, there's always a fight before the victory. Well, seven days passed, seven day passed. One week later, God sends Moses now to the court of Pharaoh, again, the place of power. The first major plague caused infrastructure chaos for a bit, but water still was accessible. So the next plague comes from the same place, the Nile. Exodus 8, 6. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and frogs came up and they covered the whole land. Magicians did the same thing by their secret arts. They also made frogs come up out of the land of Egypt. Now I want you to just sit with this for a minute. Forget some little storybook version of this. I want you to imagine millions or hundreds of millions of frogs croaking all at once. Can you imagine the noise? The slimy things are in your bed, in your bread, in your socks. They're on you all the time. They're in your baby's crib. No person, no place would not be touched by this plague. But this was not just gross. This is not just some weird major inconvenience. The plague of frogs, which came from a Nile, was actually a judgment against the frog-headed goddess of birth. This was a sign, again, that God was judging the gods and frogs were thought to be sacred. And now this supposed sacred symbol is causing chaos across all of Egypt. 
This created a massive public health crisis. No one's able to prepare food properly. So Pharaoh comes and he cries out to Moses and Moses then prays and the millions or hundreds of millions of frogs die where they're sitting and the land begins to reek. Can you imagine not only the smell, but the public health crisis of literally trying to deal with, burn, bury millions of dead frogs? Verse 15, when Pharaoh saw there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had said. So come plague three. Exodus eight seventeen. Aaron stretched out his hand with a staff and struck the dust of the ground. Gnats came from on, on the people and the animals and all the dust throughout the land of Egypt became gnats. And when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not since gnats were on the people and animals everywhere. Now, what's a gnat? <laughs> In English, it just means a biting insect that has two wings. So actually, the gnats we know most are mosquitoes. There's a great chance this is mosquitoes. And I want you to imagine this. Hundreds of billions of mosquitoes suddenly just appear and start biting everyone. Can you imagine how many people probably took their life regularly just because they are covered with these and cannot get any, any relief? Did you also notice that Aaron struck the land? See, God has authority over land and water, seen and unseen. And this time the magicians can't keep up. Oh yes, they were real. Yes, they weren't charlatans. Yes, they had real demonic power. But like in all stories of spiritual conflict, God is all powerful. Satan is just powerful. In time, his power always comes to an end. By the way, this was the judgment on Set, the Egyptian god of the desert, of the land. Well, it says in verse 19 that the magicians go to Pharaoh and they say, this is the finger of God. This is above our pay grade. Oh my goodness. And Pharaoh's heart is hardened and would not listen just as the Lord had said. So you got blood and frogs and biting insects all for a brief time and they're there and then they die and they don't cause death en masse to the Egyptians and it deals with comfort in everyday life. But now the next three plagues get much more serious. The fourth plague is flies. Exodus 8.21, if you do not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you, your officials, on your people, and into your homes. The house of the Egyptians will be full of flies. Even the ground, I want you to sit with, sit with this. Even the ground will be covered with them. And then God says in verse 23, but I'm going to make a distinction between my people and your people. The sign will happen tomorrow. Okay, ready? Think about this. No screen doors. No fully fixed doors, no windows in this very hot climate. They had fabric on windows and on doorways. They needed breeze and airflow. If they did not close or shut up the doors and windows, remember, no glass like we have today, then you live in dangerous, sweltering, unbearable, maybe killer-type heat. So you, you've got to keep your house open. But if you open them, then you're going to literally be surrounded by and and. and covered by and choking on swarms of flies. When you open your mouth to eat, your mouth is full of flies. When you sleep, you're covered with flies. When you work in the field, covered with flies. And we all know that flies are not just irritating, they carry what? Disease. This is like a biological weapon against the whole population of a nation. Pharaoh begins to crack. His demonically inspired magician's power has come to an end. His pride and power begin to give, give way. And now his people are all touched and, and the Israelites are not. But death is coming closer and closer. So it says in verse 25 that he said, okay, just enough. He says, you can go and you can go sacrifice to your God, but do it here in Egypt. Oh, 
so yes, but on my terms, so no. But Moses and Aaron have said, no, no, no. God has told us we must leave Egypt with men and women and children and all our animals and everything we own. We must go into the wilderness to do this. We must obey God and worship God as he determines, not as we determine and not as you determine. Which would have been shocking to Pharaoh because in Egyptian faith, men did the worshiping, not women or children. So Pharaoh will not give in. So we arrive at the next plague. Exodus 9.2, he says, if you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them back, the hand of the Lord will bring a terrible plague on your livestock and your fields. Horses, donkeys, camels, cattle, sheep, goats. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and that of Egypt. So things are getting worse. This plague is going to affect the food supply. This is going to affect their ability to work because these animals were the center of how farming and transportation took place. No Uber, no airplanes, no UPS, no Amazon, no I ordered. No, 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 no. This would decimate the economy. And maybe you didn't catch it. For the first time, God says personally, my hand will do this to you. Oh, this is another attack on the gods of Egypt. This was judgment on the goddess Hathor and the goddess, uh, the god Apis, who were depicted as cattle. This is a national humiliation. It happened just like God said. Now, let's just pause here for a moment because some of you are feeling pretty upset at God. How could God be so cruel and so mean? And whoa, whoa, whoa. First of all, this nation has enslaved his only first son, Israel. They don't have a right to them. And second of all, Have you caught it? God keeps giving grace upon grace. He gives so many outs to Pharaoh. He brings judgment even in increments. Even in needed judgment, there's mercy. Because God is holy love. Not just love and not just holy. He's holy love. But but Pharaoh, he, he will not heed God's warning. He will not sit under God's mercy. He will not uh, submit himself to God's word. It's also really important we catch this. It's going to matter later. Do you notice that Moses and Aaron work with God personally? He partners with God. They partner with God. They pray. They stand in the gap. They, in his power, do the thing. But they also pray and restore order. Now, Pharaoh will not listen no matter the cost to him or his people. So God sends the sixth plague, festering boils, which, by the way, was a judgment on three of their gods, Sunu, Isis, and others, because they were believed to have the power to stop disease, and yet they couldn't. Now, this gets real interesting. Exodus 9.8. God says, take a handful of soot from a furnace and have Moses toss it in the air in the presence of Pharaoh. It will become like fine dust over the whole land of Egypt and festering boils will break out on the people and the animals throughout the land. Now, I have heard this story my whole life. Growing up in Sunday school and church, I've heard this. But only this week did I see the real power of this moment. It reads like this in Hebrew. Go and grab some soot, some ash, from the kilns. Now, the Jews were slaves, and they were being used by Pharaoh to do what? (laughs) To do one thing, to build his empire. And they were baking what? Chapter 5, bricks. And where did they do that? In kilns. So go to the place of injustice and go to the place where you are not paid properly. Go to the place that represents all of your slavery and take ash out of the injustice and out of that injustice, I got him bringing justice. Wow. It says it got so bad in verse 11, the magicians could not stand before Moses because the boils were on them and all the Egyptians. Now, this also matters because in this time, magicians were also the doctors. 
they use supernatural and natural medicine and they could not heal themselves. This whole affair has become unbearable, debilitating, sickness, pain, it's everywhere. And not done, God acts again. He brings even more worse moments on the nation of Egypt. Each plague had grace, but now the gloves are off. Exodus 9, 15. For by now, God says this to Pharaoh. I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the face of the earth. Oh. But I have raised you up, Pharaoh, for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You don't know who I am? Oh, you're going to know who I am now. You think you're in charge? No, no, I'm in charge. I actually allowed you to be Pharaoh. I actually gave you the land of Egypt. I am actually sovereign over every nation. You are actually nothing, and I am everything. This moment is going to have global implications. This is going to be talked for, about for generations. We're sitting here in 2020 talking about this. I am sovereign, God says. I am God. I'm uncreated, and Pharaoh, you're created. I'm all-powerful. You're only powerful. I have no beginning or end. You have a beginning. Oh, and trust me, you have a coming end. I'm the potter and you're just the clay. Again, let me remind you, for all of us hearing this in 2020, Pharaoh was the most powerful, most wealthy, most armed man in his time. He is the nuclear option of his age. And God says, you got nothing on me. So in verse 18, therefore, at this time tomorrow, I will bring the worst hailstorm that has has ever fallen on Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, we've all experienced little hailstorms, but if you read the story of hailstorms that are dangerous and deadly, you can read about them. It's pretty wild. Hail falls at 50 meters per second. The largest hailstorm, that's a piece of hail that's been sort of measured in the last 100 years was one kilogram. In minutes, a really serious hailstorm can kill people, but also can wipe out whole crops. By the way, this is a plague directed at Newt, the sky goddess, Osiris, the crop fertility goddess, and Set, the storm god. Each one of them is overcome by the true living God, and the land is devastated. So the hailstorm comes and brings death on mass. And Pharaoh says, I've sinned again. Moses, can you pray for me? You can go. No, you cannot go. You can. You cannot. I've changed my mind. So it says in Exodus 10.3, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says, how long will you refuse? to humble yourself before me, let my people go, that they would worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I'm bringing locusts on your country tomorrow. Pharaoh is warned. He refuses. And so this mass of locusts come and devour everything. Everything. It actually says in verse 15, nothing green remained on the trees or plants in the whole land of Egypt. Literally decimates what's left. The pattern is repeated. Pharaoh would not repent. And so the second last plague comes. It's darkness. It says that total darkness covered Egypt for three days. No one could see or or move for three days. Yet all the Israelites had light in the place where they lived. Now, this plague was a direct attack on Ra, the chief deity of the Egyptians. And also, this symbolized Pharaoh himself, he was an incarnation of Ra. And for three days and three nights, there was pure darkness. Ra is overcome. Pharaoh's power is stripped. And again, we're sitting here in 2020. We don't get this. We've got lights on our phones, on our tablets, in our cars, in our homes. We can, we can have light at any time. In this moment, there is no light. 
No stars, no moon, no sun access for three full days. And in the ancient mind, darkness was associated with death and God's judgment. And also darkness was scary to people because unlike what we live today, when you traveled in darkness, thieves and bandits, all of it. This is a precursor to death. So we come to the end. The precursor of darkness, death is coming, but now death comes. And the last judgment, again, is on Isis, the protector of children. This is going to be the ultimate disaster for the royal family, but every family in Egypt, because in ancient times, the family's future was connected, who? To the firstborn son. God says to Egypt, you've enslaved my firstborn, so now I will take your firstborn. Exodus 11.5, every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the slave girl who is at her handmill and all the firstborn cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be ever again. I am the Lord, Pharaoh, and you are not. And since you will not bend, I will break you. And don't misread this. It's not just those who have just been born. See, we misread this all the time. Anyone who's a firstborn son, children, adults, grandparents, all die in a moment. And not just them, but also the animals. The Hebrew people belong to God, not to Pharaoh. Now in the middle of this, just before this takes place, we begin to see God's work of redemption. It says in Exodus 12, 7, that each family is supposed to take a perfect little lamb. Verse 7, they're to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the house where they will eat the lamb. This unblemished animal, this no defect, no disease, perfect little animal is given as a sacrifice to God. It represents a life laid down, one taking the place of another. The blood covers the doorposts in Goshen, the Jewish homes. And, and when the angel of death comes, he will pass over because he will see the mark. And so it happened. That night, hundreds of thousands or more died instantaneously. Hey, Sanctus Church, God does all of this in a season of chaos for his people. In a season of no freedom and fear. He does all of this before freedom, not after. His promises begin to get enacted. He, he moves in the season to set his people free so they can walk into the next season. So I need us to stop again in Sanctus Church. We need to be reminded, but we also need to keep in step with Jesus' spirit in the season. So, okay, how does this help me this week right now? How does this help our church? Number one, let us be reminded that we have all, if you're a Christian, been set free already from Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt and the gods of this world through Jesus Christ. God has done this through Jesus. His blood is over the doorpost of your life. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Jesus, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. But more, Jesus is the power, is the power, and has overcome all the gods of this world. Let me preach what I've preached before. Colossians 2.15, Jesus, having disarmed the powers and authorities, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Disarm means to put off, put up, strip off, and strip down. Jesus has taken all the demonic importance and potency. He has taken back everything that's been stolen in Eden. Anything that would lead a human to honor the demonic, worship the demonic, walk with the demonic, fear the demonic, or be owned by the demonic is broken. He doesn't just disarm 
disarm them. He triumphs over them. And I preached this before. Let me do it again. This comes from a Roman image. When a great general wins a war, he would march into Rome first, his army behind him, and then the defeated king and the defeated army who had not been killed would actually be in chains, walking in procession, and the Romans would mock them and throw things at them. And this is what's being declared. Jesus, by the work of his work on the cross, has stripped and disarmed Satan, and Satan and all the demonic have had to walk in the unseen world behind Jesus and admit defeat. That is true. That is true. But (laughs) Pharaoh and the gods of the nations always want us back. Sanctus Church, this is a massive moment of disruption in our world. In this time of fear and anger and uncertainty, not only is God still sovereign, not only is God's promises to us as a church, yes and amen, Not only has Jesus' work secured our resurrection and Satan is defeated, but we must choose individually and as a whole church to stand against darkness because darkness wants to destroy you and destroy this church. And if they break this local church and they break other local churches, there will be no light left in the world because God has ordained that the local church is the hope of the world. So here's the connection. Just like Moses and Aaron partnered with God, we must continue to do this in this very dangerous, disruptive time. So when we enter into the new season, we will be stronger, holier, more unified, more loving, more empowered by the Spirit. So, Sanctus Church, what has God placed in our hand to continue to do this thing? Well, here it is. He has given us the power to continue to say no to Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. And in times of high stress and in times of chaos, we need to be on our guard more, not less. And I need to say, as one of your pastors, my observation is many of us have not been on guard in this season. So how do we partner with God? One, in your own personal life, not your family's life, not the church's life, in your life, James 4, 7, submit yourself, therefore to God, resist the devil, he must Flee from you. Submit yourself is a military term. Rank under Jesus. Submission is voluntary. And resist. Fight against the harsh captivity he has set you free from. Stand against the enemy of this church. Stand against the enemy of your soul and your family and your connect group. There's no middle ground between your old master and your new master. When we say yes to God through his word and deed, Jesus's presence is pa- Jesus's, Jesus is present and his power is there. But here's the question. How do I submit So the devil then has to flee. Well, James says it. Come near to God, he'll come near to you. Come near to God is a technical term from the Old Testament, from the temple, where priests washed themselves and prepared right to enter into God's presence. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. In other words, genuinely repent of sin. Call sin, sin, and repent of it. Say, Lord, I'm sorry. Verse 10, humble yourself before the Lord. He will lift you up. Humble yourself doesn't mean I'm garbage, I'm nothing, I'm stupid, I'm just, no, no, no. That's the enemy. It's I need the work of Jesus. So in this moment of disruption, as we're waiting for a next chapter that is post-COVID and the world gets back to whatever the new normal is, here's what we need to do. We must continue to remind ourselves that Pharaoh and Egypt are already defeated, but we need to submit ourselves to God in personal holiness, resist the devil so he will flee. 
Here's the second thing. Not just you personally. We as a church must not give a foothold to the devil in this very disruptive moment. Let me preach what I've preached before. Ephesians 4.26. In your anger, do not sin. Hey, everyone. How angry have you been in the last six months? How's your social media post doing? Even on just issues. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. Paul is saying if you do not deal with your anger, you as a Christian will give demonic influence, area, locality, occasion, opportunity, place, region, room, inside your life. Jesus is still the owner of you, of course. But like squatters living in a house they don't have rights to, they still influence and affect and graffiti the inside of the house. If you read this carefully, I love when one author said, Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, hold out for the potential of a Christian succumbing to demonic inhabitation on the basis of excessive sin over time. And the examples he uses in this passage, very relevant, bitterness, rage, anger, and brawling. Now, Ephesians 4, 30 gives perspective that the demonic inhabitation and influence isn't permanent. Paul affirms that a sitting believer is still the property of God. They're sealed until the day of redemption. But he teaches us that the Spirit of God is grieved and the sinful behavior gives foothold, topos, to a demonic spirit. In other words, many of us in Sanctus Church have allowed a Trojan horse in ourselves, in our family, and in this church. How much room have you given to the evil one through your thoughts and your words, your social media posts, and your interactions? A demon in me but does not own me? Yes. How much of the demonic are crawling around us, our connect groups, our family, even in this virtual worship service, because we've played with fire, anger, brawling, etc., etc., and did not think it would be so extreme? This is war. This is not fair. Just because you don't think this could not happen or it doesn't fit into your theology or you don't really believe in demons or you don't think that could happen to a Christian does not mean it will not happen to you. The Bible says it will, so if you play this game, it will. Here's the point. We need to commit personally to personal holiness and resisting the devil. And we as a church must not give topos, foothold, in any way, shape, or form to the evil one in this moment. And if we have, we need to repent and ask God to clean the house again. And here's the last thing. How do we continue to partner with God in this season? Just like Moses and Aaron did. Well, here it is. There are so many things that are bigger than us. This is an impossible moment. And when, we, when we're facing down spiritual resistance we can't even see and all these massive issues, here's what we need to do. We need to also, when we say jokingly around here, when it's above our pay grade, we need to go to God in prayer and ask Him to do something we can't. Let me end here. 1 Thessalonians 2.18. Paul says, I wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, again and again, and Satan stopped us. So in In 1 Thessalonians 3, it says, Night and day we pray earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking your faith. And if you keep reading, he says, May God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ clear a path from us to you. This shows the reality of our partnership with God and the reality of spiritual warfare. This is not illusion. This is not fable. Paul, the great giant of missions, the great man of prayer, the great man of theological output, one of the greatest leaders and thinkers in history, the one who was caught up in the third heaven, the one who was chosen by Jesus to tell the world about God's second chance is literally in his ministry stopped by the kingdom of darkness, not just once, but again and again and again. Paul could not and was not able to see the local church because Satan shut every door. Satan stopped, blocked, closed, and clogged the way. So the war is not fable. It's real. 
And Satan can stop a church. And Satan can stop a Christian. And Satan can dampen a move of God. And Paul was so aware that this was so impossible and so above his pay grade that he prayed this, may God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ clear a path. So you say, well, John, what's the response this week? Well, number one, in this time of fear, uncertainty, and all the stuff we're facing, and anger, and fractions, and fraying, submit yourself to God, resist Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt, and he will flee. Number two, do not give a foothold to the kingdom of darkness by habitual sin in any direction. And ask the Holy Spirit this week, where have I done this so topos, foothold, can be removed? And third of all, we as a whole church need to do this. We need to go before God. Last week we said, God, here are the promises. We remind you. This week we need to say now, God, God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, clear all sorts of paths, do all these miracles personally and as a church so your kingdom can move forward in this very dangerous time. Very simply, Lord, as we end, thank you that you're sovereign. Thanks your promises are true. Thank you that you, just like you put a staff in Aaron and Moses' hand, you've given us the power of the Spirit. Help us to resist the evil one. I pray for personal holiness in my life, in this church's life. I pray that every place where there is topos, a foothold in this church, Holy Spirit, you would show us and the stuff would be kicked out. I pray that God, our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, you would clear so many paths through not only what we're facing societally or personally or in our systems, but actually clear paths supernaturally in the unseen world so the kingdom of God can show up in great power and many would meet Jesus. Lord, lead our church to pray in ways it has not prayed in a while. In Jesus' name. We all said together, amen. I cannot wait to be with you next week when we finish this mini-series, standing in front of the Red Sea and asking what door God might want to be opening in this impossible time. We'll see you next week.